Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast today that I'm really pumped about. Uh, we've got Kurt Elbin on the podcast. He's the recruiting coordinator at Virginia Tech uh, in the ACC. I'll give you a quick bit of background. Uh, before we jump into questions with him, he is a native of Bedford, Pennsylvania, which is not very far from where I'm originally from, and, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit in this podcast. Uh, he played at Lock Haven University, a Division II school in Pennsylvania. When he was done playing, uh, started his coaching career at Muhlenberg. Uh, in, he was there in 2007. From 2008 through 2010, he was an assistant coach at Teal College. That's a Division three school in Pennsylvania. When he was at Teal, they were ranked as high as 13th in the nation and had one of the best offenses in the country at that level. In 2011 and 12, he spent two years as an assistant coach at Shippensburg University, a division, another Division two school in Pennsylvania. Then from 2013 through 17, he was an assistant coach at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, in Richmond, Virginia, part of the Atlantic 10. VCU has been one of the most successful programs uh, in the, as far as mid-majors go for the last decade or so. And uh, while he was at VCU, they had four straight, 35, uh, 30, four straight seasons of 35 or more wins. Uh, one year in there, they won the regular season. Uh, conference championship, and in the 2015, they won the conference tournament championship. They advanced to a regional and a super regional, the first super regional in VCU history. The 2017 team led the conference in batting average, on-base percentage, and hit-by-pitches. They were also 14th in the nation in hit-by-pitch. They finished in the top 100 uh, in batting average three of Coach Elvin's four, last four years at VCU. He was hired at Virginia Tech in June of 2017. His team at VCU, since he's arrived, has increased on base percentage significantly since he first took over. They've been ranked in the top 35 nationally and hit by pitches, uh, which is an interesting stat to me. That one keeps coming up, so we're probably going to have to get into that one as well. Uh, they've increased uh, their walk totals, and again, on base percentage. He's done a great job doing that, kind of formulating the offense there. The 2020 season started off uh, you know, pretty well offensively. They're ranked in the top 100 nationally in a lot of categories. They're in the top 100, I'm sorry, top 10 nationally in stolen bases. Um, he's also coached in his, in his career as a college coach. He has recruited or coached more than 30 players who've gone on to play professional baseball. Uh, coach Elvin, really appreciate you taking some time to be on a podcast with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, excited to chat with you, man, for sure. So it's, uh, I always like Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. To start with something from the bio that stands out, as, as people know that have listened to our podcast before, and, and something that's very, very interesting to me is the path that you've taken as a college coach, uh, going from a Division three coach for a cup for a handful of years to a Division two coach for a handful of years to a, a mid-major for a handful of years, and now a Power Five. Um, it's unbelievable. Most guys, a lot of guys out there have trouble moving from one level to the next or feel like you kind of get labeled a little bit when you're at one level, like, ah, oh, he's a Division II guy. He's not He's not a, Not ready to be a Division I coach or what, what have you. Uh, but you have kind of defied those odds and, and continue to jump levels. And I'm just kind of – I'd love to get into that with you and just maybe talk how that happened and just kind of find out a little bit more about your path. 
yeah, you know, it's, it's um, as we kind of shared before, uh, it, it's more about like just having the passion to to get out and network, and, and that's kind of how my my story has, has been written and unfolded. Uh, you know, and, and I get calls all the time and talk to some younger guys that are trying to get into the game. They ask, well, hey, you know, hey, you were a D2 player. And how did you get into Division One? And um, basically, I was open to going anywhere. I just wanted to coach and meet people. And I wanted to get on the road. And, I, and that's, that started at the Division Three level. Um, you know, I never – I didn't take any jobs that I couldn't go and recruit um, because I knew recruiting – to me, getting on the road and evaluating players was a chance uh, to kind of grow my network. Um, you know, so when I started at Muhlenberg right out of college, it was, you know, I coached some infielders and, and uh, you know, I think I coached, I can't even remember if I coached first base or not, but uh, I was there first season and, um, you know, by, by working at camp uh, in that summer, um, you know, I met, uh, met a guy that kind of got me connected uh, to Teal. And, uh, you know, Teal is, is kind of the same thing. Worked at camp uh, while I was, you know, in the summers. And, and I worked some summer leagues and, and, and kind of just got out and grew my network. And Coach Jones took me on there. I, was, I still talk to Coach Jones at least once or, you know, once or twice every week. And, and, and we've remained really good friends there at Shippensburg. He's done a phenomenal job there. Um, when I went, uh, when I went to VCU, it was a weird situation, and, and it was a weird situation because I got hired by Paul Keyes, uh, that wasn't uh, recruiting at the time as the head coach because uh, at that time he, he was diagnosed with cancer. Um, so when I took the job, I, I took the job as the volunteer with the ability to go and recruit, um, and so that was an that, that was an extremely different situation when I when I got to, to VCU there uh, in, in the in the fall or the summer of 2012 uh, that's kind of what uh, you know allowed me to take that position because I knew I could go and recruit um, you know and that, that you know we had some success there and I had a chance to, to work under uh, coach Stifler and um, I have so much to, to, to say about him and thank him for, you know, what he's done for my career. And, and actually, I was on the phone with him for about an hour yesterday, so we, we, we stay in touch as well. So, but I don't know if that's what you wanted to hear, but that's kind of my background of how I've kind of made it to where I'm at. Absolutely. How, how about, I'd like to just, if you don't mind, just kind of ask specifically, with VCU, can you kind of tell us what transpired for you to even get that volunteer job? Because even... You know, Division One volunteer jobs are pretty sought after because I think a lot of guys realize that you know Division One volunteer jobs can often end up you know leading to promotions or, or a job, another job at that level or, or whatever. But it's a, it's a, I think for a lot of coaches out there, just like players, Division One is is a level that a lot of guys aspire to to be at. I'm sure there's a lot of competition. Did it have anything to do with with you and Coach Stifler? Uh, kind of both being uh, uh, Central Pennsylvania type guys, or had you met them before at, at camps, or what, can you can you kind of tell us what yeah. what happened to lead to that? Yeah, well, I, I knew of Steph, uh, Coach Steph. I, I, I didn't really have a good, uh, or I just didn't know him that well. I think we have, you know, we had shared some mutual friends. He actually played against my older brother growing up. Um, they're the same age, but so when I was at Shippensburg, I took a job in the summers. Um, to work for All-Star Baseball Academy. And basically what I did was I was a site supervisor for some of their events where we would take buckets of balls and nets and radar guns and we'd travel around the East Coast. I went all the way down into North Carolina, all the way up into Jersey, and we would just uh, run their, uh, their some of their showcases. Well, we did one in Richmond, and 
Coach Keys was there working it. Um, he was up there and, and uh, working it, and I had a chance to spend some time with him. And when BC's volunteer left the year uh, I got hired, I believe Coach um, Coach Temple just called me out of the blue, but he had talked to Coach Keys about some guys, and somehow my name came up. And that's, to be honest with you, there really wasn't any rhyme or reason other than the fact that I took my time, took some time to just chat with Coach Keys, working at camp in Richmond, Virginia, um, when I was employed for another school. Um, so that, that's kind of how that, 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 that came about, um, you know. And, and uh, but it was it had nothing to do with a past relationship. It was more just you know meeting some guys and, and talking to them. And I think he uh, he knew I was a guy that, that had some recruiting experience that could come and actually take the position of volunteer with, with, with the tie to recruiting at that time. It's, it's kind of funny that you say that because I, there's a lot of parallels there between what, uh, what happened to you and then how I got to Winthrop. And I've shared this in probably another podcast or two, but, but my first job was at a, a small division one in Pittsburgh. Uh, I was, I was the second assistant, but didn't get a chance to go out and do much recruiting. And I really wanted to do that for a lot of the reasons that you said, so I took a job at a junior college in Iowa, uh, but when I was still at my first job at Duquesne University, um, I worked at camp at Winthrop, and I, you know, met the whole staff. They, they were all working. I got to meet everybody, and <laughs> funny enough, Mike McGuire, the guy I ended up working for for five years later, um, he didn't. He and I didn't get to interact much, but I, I talked with the head coach as much as I could because he was a Pennsylvania guy. I, I talked to their their pitching coach quite a bit. He's the one that kind of like set me up with everything at the camp. And then I was at this junior college in Iowa, and I was recruiting in Georgia for the summer. And actually, I took a job with Perfect Game. Perfect Game, used to, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to do this with junior college guys. They'd pay junior college guys to sit at a field and, and scout, basically, and take scouting notes. So I was doing that. I was, you know, getting paid to scout, which was, which was amazing at the time. And, um, but, I, you know, being in Atlanta, I ran into the pitching coach from Winthrop. He kind of said, hey, what are you doing this summer? And I said, I, you know, I'm looking, looking for a job. would love to get back into Division One and he said our volunteer job is open, and I didn't I didn't hear anything for like a month. Uh, I, I sent him my stuff and, and didn't hear anything for quite a while, and then kind of out of the blue got a call from the head coach. But I, I found out later that I got their volunteer job because they have a lot of tournaments at their field at Winthrop, and they basically want they wanted to hire a volunteer who had recruiting experience and who could basically be trusted to recruit there. So that's almost like having four guys on the road, right? And and that's how I ended up getting the volunteer job at Winthrop was because I had some. Uh, some prior recruiting experience, and I know that helped me a lot there. So definitely some similarities. Yeah. What about uh, going to Virginia Tech? I mean, that's a pretty good jump as well. Going from, you know, going from a good mid-major to a Power Five is not an easy move to make. And and I mean, heck, those the, when those jobs come open, there are you know probably hundreds upon hundreds of applicants. Can you kind of talk us through what happened there for you to go from VCU to Virginia Tech? Yeah, for sure. So. Um you know, when we were at VCU, we used to always go up to Maryland and play Coach Sheff and his team up there. Um, but other than that, I, I never really um, had, I didn't have his number. I, we never talked. Uh, but once again, just just a just a random experience. I was recruiting. I remember I was recruiting, recruiting at uh, UVA at the University of Virginia, and uh, Coach Sheff was there, and we were watching an underclass event, uh, and there was like four coaches there. And I was there to see a specific player, but I sat there, and somehow Coach Chef sat down next to me. We introduced ourselves and kind of, you know, uh, said our said our uh, hellos and, and hey, you know, obviously 
played against each other a little bit. I sat down to talk to him for basically the whole day, like four hours. Um, outside of that interaction, had no previous or uh, post uh, conversations or correspondence with him um, until uh, you know until until another opportunity came up for me before uh, I took the job with Virginia Tech. I, 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 I knew he was the guy that worked in the ACC before when Maryland was there. You know, I called him up. I got his number from one of their assistants and called him up. And we talked at length about another opportunity that I had at that time. And, um, you know, he had, he had told me that, you know, he thought it was, you know, my best interest to stay put. He's just at VCU. Uh, I stayed at VCU. We had a really good year. Uh, he gets a job at Virginia Tech. And calls me on this, like right after the, uh, the press conference, and 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 he wanted a guy that had recruiting experience in the state because he was bringing his pitching coach, Coach Pecto, with him from Maryland that had no ties to the state, and neither did Coach Chef really, and that's kind of how that became, um, you know, my, my my link there to getting the job at Virginia Tech. But I I honestly think it was because of you know the work that we had done at BCU, but that that day there at UVA where we had that opportunity to sit down and, and just chat. He got to know me a little bit. Um, and we didn't really, we didn't, we're not staying in touch. Uh, but I think he kind of respected, uh, you know, where I came from and what I did there uh, with my time, you know, at, at BCU. Those conversations are can be so valuable. And I tried to do the same thing when I recruited. I just, I tried to talk to him. You know, I, I really wanted to work. I found, I would find myself sometimes at those events if I talked to guys too much, <laughs> several innings would go by when I wouldn't have any notes taken and like, all right, I got to, I got to lock in here, but I would try to talk to people, you know, when there were, when there were opportunities, downtimes between games, whatever, for the, for a lot of those reasons, <clears throat> I'm curious to, to know about the conversations that you've had with guys over the years. Like when you're at events and maybe you happen to sit next to somebody who is in a position to potentially, you know, maybe hire you someday, or maybe it's not so much now. Cause I mean, you're, you are where you are. Uh, but but as an as, you know as an assistant kind of moving up through the ranks, when you were next to a guy who you thought I, I'd love to you know coach on that team or maybe this is a guy that might have a chance to hire me someday, what sorts of conversations did you find yourself having with those coaches? Um, you know, were were you trying to ask questions and, and do a lot of listening? Were you trying to uh, sort of you know, tell them about yourself and in a, not and not in a in a showy way, but just as a way for them to like get to know you, so they would know kind of your philosophy and know that that you're not uh, that that you're a good coach and, and kind of get an idea of what sort of coach you are. Can I just kind of ask about those conversations that you that you would you would have with coaches and, and how those went? Yeah, um, I always I always thought about that to myself, like when I was you know when I was younger and and. Um, you know, get around some, some guys at some established programs, like how you interact with those guys, because they could affect your career down the road. And I, I think I think as I matured in the game and, and, and my career moved on, I, it was more to me about asking guys how they were doing, how their family were doing, like just things that didn't really relate to baseball. Because at the end of the day, I think you can train someone coming into your program a, a certain system or a way but I think what they I think what people want to know is are you good people um, do you have communication skills and, and, and can you can you relate um, to other things outside of baseball that's the, that's the angle I took um, you know and, and then obviously we get into some baseball talk and, uh, and, and I would certainly share my opinions on certain things but I would do a lot more 
listening than I would through talking. Uh, but anytime I talk, like anytime we're out and about and we're recruiting and I'm, and I'm talking to a, a colleague or another coach, it's, to me, it's, it's what I try to do. And I probably don't do a good job because we always get back to talking about baseball. I try to talk about other things, to be honest with you, uh, <laughs> because we get, you know, we get paid to, 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 to be in the game and, and always uh, be mindful of the game and, and talk about the game. And at some point, I think it's more about just talking about relationships and or developing relationships in that in that um, in that way. So, but but, but, but there's no doubt. I, you would certainly, um, I would always try to put my two cents in about a certain thing that was going on in the sport, whether it be something swing related or offense related or infield related. Um, I always had an angle there, but I always wanted to make sure we just talked about some other things. It's such a delicate thing because you don't want to be at those types of events and, and, and just promoting yourself because everybody can sniff that out and it's not a good color on anybody. Uh, but at the same time, like I'm sure that you want to, Try to leave people with a good impression of yourself. Uh, you know, speaking of that Winthrop job, after my first year there, the head coach got fired. Um, I was out recruiting that summer, and and this was before the, the coach got fired, but I saw Tom Reginas out at an event who at the time was the recruiting coordinator at Clemson. I wanted to be a recruiting coordinator at that time. That was my goal to be like an ACC, SEC recruiting coordinator. Well, I saw an ACC recruiting coordinator there, and, and uh, I know, you know, Clemson is, was a school that, like, I kind of grew up idolizing, and <clears throat> you just love those those uh, those colors and the Clemson cut pants and Jack Leggett and all that stuff. And um, so, anyway, I went up to Tom Reginas and, and just introduced myself, and I asked him some questions, asked him some recruiting questions, and, like, I didn't really speak much. I just I listened. I legitimately wanted to learn from somebody who's doing it at a high level, and when he took the Winthrop job, he kept me. Um, for for one year before I ended up moving on, but but he told me one of the reasons that he kept me was because he remembered that conversation, and, and and for whatever reason that left a little bit of an impression on him, and, and decided that it was a good idea to, to keep me on. So, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily I didn't I didn't talk to him that day because I thought, of course, I, I would have loved to work at Clemson, but I didn't go up to him thinking that, you know, if I talked to him, I got a shot at working at Clemson. I just kind of wanted to learn from somebody who I felt like knew more than me and. Was it a higher level than me? And, and it ended up working out in my favor, for sure. Sure, sure. That's good. That's good. Um, let's flip a little bit, Coach, and talk about, as, a, as an offensive coach, offensive philosophy, uh, one of the, a couple of things kind of stick out when, when you look at, like, past offenses that you've coached. A couple of the things that stick out, batting average, you, your team seemed to hit well, your team seemed to do well in on-base percentage, and your teams uh, seem to get on base for free quite a bit between hit by pitches and walks. And that, that seems to be, you know, without uh, having asked you before, that seems to those seem to be some things that you focus on a little bit with your offenses. Can we just talk a little bit about maybe what your overall offensive philosophy is? You know, as you move from school to school, maybe it's changed over time, but what do you think? makes up a good college offense like what are some statistics that you want your teams to be good at or or maybe like when you first take over a program like we need to get better in these areas are there certain areas that you feel like or certain stats you feel like good offenses are usually good in these particular areas and this is kind of where we want to focus on getting better yeah yeah for sure well well first off it's, it's funny you, you um as you go from place to place your recruiting's a little different and i think you know what your niche is and, and, and what your 
certain staff deals is important, certainly drives, uh, you know, some of your offensive um, concepts and, and core values. And, you know, whether you want runners or whether you want guys that can hit a little bit because of your park. Um, so those things have changed throughout the time. But for, for, for me specifically, I mean, it is, it, is, it is about getting on base and it's about scoring runs. And that is, you know, on base and slugging um, is, is always going to drive uh, offenses that I have any, anything to do, to, to, to do with. Um, and sometimes, you know, you don't have the person, personnel to slug. You, 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 you know, I think sometimes I, you can create a little bit of that. But more importantly, I do think you can, you can really sell out um, to practicing and putting your guys in settings where you can create, um, you know, a, a high on-base uh, machine. Um, but being on base, um, getting free 90s, um, those things are, are, are things I think that you do have control over. And that's something that we preach a lot um, at all the places I've been is is taking advantage of things you have control over. Um, durable reads, stolen bases, um, you know, having uh, strike zone discipline and, and having, you know, being aware of the zone so you can put yourself in advantage counts to either do damage or to draw locks. So we're, we're constantly preaching, um, finding ways to, to, to create um, different ways to get on base because getting on base is getting guys into um, scoring situations, but you're also just putting pressure on pitchers to execute pitches. So, um, yeah, so specifically talking, I don't know how deep you want me to get into it. Um, first things first, we want to uh, evaluate our personnel. What do we feel we can do well as a team? And then we're going to attack those strengths as best we can, and we're going to uh, design our offense, per se, around those things. Um, you know, and, and once you kind of figure out what your guys do well, you want to put a plan in, in action. And, uh, you know, this, this past year, specifically speaking, um, you know, we, we wanted to do everything we could to allow our guys to just simplify their approach, um, whether that be taking away a certain side of the plate and, and box adjusting to that because they could handle the away pitch because their swing worked that way. Um, so we would just put them in the box, and, and we spent a lot of time trying to evaluate what our guys did well so we could then put them in a situation to handle um, you know, a certain pitch or a certain zone, if that makes sense. So we did a lot of seven-ball drills, uh, trying to understand what our guys could handle, and then we just attack that uh, area in, in the games. You know, uh, the other thing that we do a lot with is um, we talk a lot about trying to eliminate uh, pitchers certain pitches, whether you're a right-handed hitter or you're a left-handed hitter. Um, does he throw this certain pitch to this side of the hitter? Um, if I'm a right-handed hitter and it's a left-handed arm, um, and let's say he's a big fastball changeup guy, you know, we're going to attack that. You know, we're going to try to eliminate pitches so our guys aren't up there thinking, okay, well, you know, if I watch him on video, he's throwing four pitches. Um, but maybe this pitch doesn't get hit or he doesn't throw this one for strikes. So we're going to eliminate those two pitches, and we're basically going to key in on this pitch in this zone because that's where it gets hit. So we're constantly talking about, without getting too involved, we're constantly talking about how to simplify each of our hitters' approaches. Um within the game, going into the game, what picture we're seeing. Um, but usually, Jeff, it comes down to um, competing in the box, 
not giving ground and finding a way to be successful and finding a way to compete. And, and, and we, we try to do that um, as much as we can. When you talk about eliminating pitches, Coach, does that mean just to to try to, you know, I'd like to try to, I guess, define some things that people not, might not be familiar with. When you talk about eliminating pitches, can you define what that means for hitters? Yeah, for sure. So let's let's say, you know, you're just talking about a stock right-handed arm, um, and let's say he has three pitches. He throws fastball, and I won't, I won't get into two-seam or four-seam, but he throws a fastball, and, and then he has a slider, uh, and then he has a change-up, okay? But if I go up and, and, you know, we have data. We have a ton of video and a ton of data. We can see all the, the previous guys' starts um, or their, their, their release appearances. And let's say I'm a right-handed hitter. This guy that throws fastball slider change-up um, throws his slider 30% of the time for strikes. Well, if I'm a right-handed hitter, I'm not going to go up there and I'm not going to honor his slider, meaning I'm not going to try to deal with it slider. I'm not going to look for it. I'm just going to sit fastball and adjust to a certain part of the zone. Um, and let's also say maybe he um, doesn't throw change-ups to righties. He only throws change-ups to lefties. Well, if his slider doesn't get thrown for strikes, and if he doesn't throw the change-up to the right-handed hitter, uh, I'm, going to, I'm just going to hunt fastball. It's, to me, it's that simple. Now, there's, you're going to deal with guys that sometimes – can command those pitches. Um, you know, let's say that same guy gets a feel of his slider in the second inning and he starts, he just starts throwing it and guys don't hit it. Guys aren't hitting it. Um, even if he's throwing it for strikes at times, but let's say player X can't hit the slider, we know that as a staff. I'm not going to go up there and be like, hey, just sit on slider because he's not going to, he, he's, a, he's a player that can't handle that pitch. So we're constantly trying to match up what what is the guy throwing for strikes? What did he what actually gets hit? Okay, and what does he use to get this type of hitter out? And we're just trying to find the the things that that, that kind of match up in our favor, if that makes sense. So we're constantly eliminating pitches, and it's it's a certainly a fluid conversation throughout the game, um, you know, because. We're, we're gonna we're gonna pay attention to what he's doing. If you pay attention in between innings, like if you go out there and it's the second inning and the guy's throwing eight sliders or five sliders, and you know he's trying to get feel of it because he hasn't commanded it, you know he doesn't trust it. So we're constantly looking at that and paying attention to what the pitcher is showing us to just allow us to simplify our approach. Love that, and I know that for hitters that can do that, it makes a a big, big difference in their approach at the plate. Um, you kind of talked about for your overall offensive philosophy for the team that you you evaluate your personnel and and, and kind of go with uh, with what you've got. I think that there are some teams out there at every level that try to be certain types of teams. You know, some some teams they want to run, they want to be known for for running a lot and stealing bases. Other teams want to be known to slug, and they they want to try to slug one through nine. Um, and whether you're talking about a college team, a pro team, or even a high school, I think that there, uh, a lot of coaches can kind of get caught up in that, and and they always want to have this certain identity. So y- you kind of evaluate the the um, the personnel that you've got on your team. Does that mean just to kind of go a level deeper? Does that mean that if you have just say you, you when you first showed up there, you first got to Virginia Tech, you didn't get to recruit any of these guys. You you've got who you've got. 
if you have a team of a bunch of guys that really run, then you're going to try to create runs that way. If you have a team of a guy, a bunch of guys that slug, you're going to try to create runs that way. Is that what you mean when you say that you're going to evaluate your personnel and kind of dictate your offense from there? For sure, for sure. There's, there's no doubt about it. And that has a lot to do with recruiting. A lot, a lot of these established programs that that are always in the top ten in a certain category, whether it be slug, whether it be running, they, they, they have a recruiting formula that they recruit to. They get that personnel in there, and they know what it's going to look like. Therefore, that system sometimes doesn't change. Uh, you know, you look at some teams. Um, I have some buddies at Wofford. They run a ton, but they, they recruit to that, right? Um, you know, and, and uh, so that, that, that certainly is, is kind of what I mean. But, yes, if we have guys, like when we first got to Virginia Tech, um, we had zero team speed. We didn't have many guys that could run. So we tried to – now, of course, I'm trying to instill uh, some of the offensive values that I believe in and that would never go away. The hit-by-pitch, um, you know, being tough, you know, tough with two strikes as best you can. But we knew for us to score runs that we we just weren't made up with – three or four guys in the lineup that were going to get hits in a row. Meaning, like, if, a guy, if, we, if we were relying on guys to hit singles and, and, and to hit for a high average, we weren't going to score runs. We were just trying to, trying to swing to do damage, to try to, you know, hit a, hit a you know, score guy from first because we knew at some point there was going to be the matchups, there was going to be a hole in the lineup. And that's just, that is what it is. Um, that's, that's how that, that season went. Um, you know, th- this year I felt like we had, um, jump into 2020, I felt like we had seven or eight guys where we were going to get a good at bat. I really felt that way. And we had some guys that could scoot a little bit. Um, and it just kind of, you know, just, you know, just kind of, you know, evolved into this offense of like, you know, we had three guys that were going to slug in the middle, um, but we had some guys that could run the ball into the gap, but every guy was a threat to run. Therefore, we got better fastballs to hit. Um, guys had to work quicker to the plate. They left some balls up, and, and, and you know, it, it allowed us to score runs when guys weren't commanding their secondary pitches. And if they were commanding their secondary pitches and they were going to spin, we were just going to run. And I really liked where we were at um, you know, before the season got cut short. Um, but the personnel told us to do that, right? Um, it told us that we could run. also told us that we had the ability to slug if they were going to throw fastballs. But if they were just going to spin, we were just going to take the pitch and try to steal the bag. So, like, those things are constantly happening um, in front of your eyes uh, as, as a coach, I, I believe. Um, and, and you're trying to evaluate um, what your guys can do and what they can't do. But, it's, but if, Jeff, if you want me to draw up the perfect offense, it's, it's, you know, it's guys that can do both, man. It's guys that can run, they have bad speed, they can drive the ball, um, you know, into, into the gaps and, and over the fence. So we're, we're going to do everything we can to get guys on base and to slump. Um, and if we can get guys on base and run and put them in scoring position, then it becomes that much easier to score. So those, those are the offenses I want to be involved in and, and the ones that we're certainly going to try to continue to, to replicate moving forward at Virginia Tech. So when you're out recruiting and you're trying to put a team together from year to year, and obviously you're recruiting guys when they're pretty young, but you're still projecting what type of player they're going to be, do you try to, at this point, recruit to a certain style of offense, or do you just recruit the best possible player? And I guess just to, to kind of bring it, you know, make it a little bit real, if you have three guys in the same class, the same position, and they all have a little bit of a different skill set, maybe one guy really, really runs, 
but doesn't have a lot of pop. Obviously, still like you know good enough to play for you guys, but his best tool is speed. Another guy whose best tool is power, and another guy whose best tool is maybe he just he's got good barrel control. He barrels the ball up a lot, but you know he's an okay runner. He's guy okay power wise, but he can really barrel the ball. Do you have specific things that you try to recruit, or are you just kind of recruiting the best overall player and kind of and, and like whatever our personnel ends up being, that's what we'll be as an offense. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, we first got to Virginia Tech, we we're just trying to get the best players we could get. Um, but looking at it now, and, and as we have had you know two or three years of recruiting classes to come through, um, or that are coming through, excuse me, um, you know, I, we have we have a thought of uh, you got to do one of two things uh, on the offensive side. You have to either really run or you have to hit. Um, you have to show us the ability to barrel baseball, um, or you have to be, you, you have to have um, the ability to run. We would love the combo guy. We're going to take as many of the combo guys as we can. And then as you flip it, um, let's say a guy is average runner, average, average bat. Like he's going to he's going to project to be a 280 hitter. Um, then he has to have high defensive value. And I think when you look at shortstops, catchers. In center fielders, you're trying to get as many, everyone does. You're trying to get as many of those guys as you can. But when you look at those guys as an offensive player, to me, like, they have to have high defensive value if you're going to, if you're going to give a little bit on the run tool or the hit tool, if that makes sense. So it's, to us, it's one of those three things. It's run, hit, high defensive value. What, they, they have to do one of those three things. Now, we're going to take as many combo guys as we can get, right? Um, but just taking just taking the big, burly slugger um, that has limited defensive value and can't run, in the ACC, in the SEC, in, 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 in any good conference in, in college baseball, that guy, if he doesn't hit, he goes unnoticed. And we're trying, as best we can, um, we're trying to... to to avoid, I don't want to say avoid getting that player, but you just can't miss on the bat. Um, because you look up and no one hits the Friday night guys uh, for the most part. Like, you're going to go through uh, spurts of Fridays in a row in the ACC where like, you're going to get four hits off the starter, hopefully, and maybe score one run. So the guy that can only hit, like, his only tool is hit, it might get absolutely neutralized, and then that guy has no value in your team win. Because he's an average defender, average runner. Um, he, if he draws a walk, he's going to clog the bases, and he can't get a dirt ball read, or he can't run. So, um, if you're going to take a guy that hits, you just can't miss on that bat. If, 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 if I'm going to be honest with kind of how we like that's that's how we go about evaluating guys, and that's how we go about um, you know evaluating talent. Um, and, I, and I will throw one more little thing, but you also look up and, and see the guy that. You go and see him one time, and you're like, eh, it looks like a good player, but he's always around good stuff. You go see him again, eh, it looks like a good player, but his team's always win, and, and, you know, he's always in the middle of something good happening. You go watch him a third or a fourth or a fifth time, and it looks like this dude is just always around good things happening on the field. Then you take that guy because he might have an innate quality that we can't see that he either makes guys around him better or he's just going to make your program better. We'll take that guy, too. So um, the guy that has some edge to him, and he's just a really good baseball player, there's a room for that guy in our program as well. Love that. 
<clears throat> now, did, that, did anything change as you moved up levels? Like, were you able to be more specific? So, had I asked you that same question, and you were still at VCU or even at Shippensburg, and obviously, at, you you know, you've grown and progressed and matured as well. But if you were, you know, the same person you are today, but you were you were at, you went back to VCU or went back to Shippensburg, uh, do you think that you can get more specific with with what you want to recruit at different levels, or is it just you're recruiting the same, basically the same way, like trying to get that power speed combo, and he's got to do more than one thing. He can't just hit, but but obviously it's not just the same caliber of guy. Uh, is that something that cha has changed for you as you've moved up levels? Yeah, I think it has, and, and the only reason is because the level of pitching gets better, right? If I were to go back to DCU, I, you know, and, and, and you go to these some of these other conferences where I, I feel like you can get players to. Uh, and I used to say this all the time that VCU and I would talk to Stiff about this our head guy and we would always talk about being able to overwhelm the pitcher's ability to throw quality pitches in his own because he was scared of you either running or hitting the ball in the gap so we talked about and, and to steal Stiff's term I give him credit you know, he always talked about rabbits or gorillas like, we either get runners or we get we get maulers guys are going to maul baseballs because you know the in-between guy um, it's just you know he's just average at that level, but the guy that can really really run, maybe you can teach him to do some things, right? Or the guy that can really really hit, um, you know, maybe he's going to make the guys around you um, better in that lineup, um, you know, because it, and then you jump back into to, to the ACC or the SEC or uh, you know the, the Pac-12, whatever. I, there's good baseball everywhere, but I feel like good hitting. And guys that just hit sometimes get neutralized on Fridays and Saturdays uh, in our league. So going back, if I were the same coach now, going back to VCU, I, I think you could recruit absolutely um, to a certain philosophy that plays to your park that, that you can kind of create some um, some good matchups in the league. It's <clears throat> Recruiting is always fun for me to talk about. I, I really do enjoy a lot of things about it. Um, if you're recruiting, you know, you're recruiting guys that, that have those tools that we just talked about, but at the same time, your teams have have done really well uh, batting average-wise. Is batting average something that you believe in as an offense? Uh, and I ask that sort of just because in, in Major League Baseball, which I'm sure a lot of our, you know, I would assume most of our subscribers are, are also fans of Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, Major League Baseball batting average has sort of become something that people just don't care about much anymore. Uh, not that it's, it's maybe there are some individual players, but offenses in general, it's just not a stat that people pay attention to. And even the people that, <laughs> you know, the Twitter trolls that, that have never played, have never coached, like, in, and they're just stat rats, like, you know, they'll they'll uh, just talk about all these other stats that mean more. To you as a hitting coach, does batting average still carry any weight for you? Is it still something that you like to see for um, because you, you believe it's batting average is, is a an ingredient to a good offensive, uh, a good consistent offense? Well, yeah, I do. I, I do. I have a couple of thoughts going through my head, but the, the, the short answer is yes. And the reason is is because – I've always believed this, and I've always said this. I say this to our guys on staff all the time. If you go and watch a player and he gets hit, uh, and you go and watch another player and he has really good tools but he doesn't get hit, there, there, there's a vision issue or there's a hand-eye coordination issue that we might not be able to evaluate. Uh, 
hitters that hit, they hit, and they always hit. So if you're a guy that believes, well, I want, I, I want to create a team that slugs, or you know, I want to be a team that runs. Um, I've done this, and I and I've seen it happen through uh, weighted bat programs and and weighted ball programs and just movement progression things where you can make you can take the hitter that has the ability to hit, maybe just hit singles, and you can increase his exit velocity um, by 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 a large amount. Um, through just if you want to attack that certain part of his game, you can do that. But the guy that swings and misses, you cannot fix. Um, I firmly believe that. So batting average to me is guys that have the ability to hit the baseball where guys aren't. And they either, you either call them really lucky or they're just really good at getting the ball in the barrel. So to me, batting average is an absolute um, indicator of success. It's not the end-all be-all. But I think you can take the kid that has the ability to hit for a high average and make him and form him into a guy that actually can slug down the road as he matures and progresses and creates strength in his swing. Um, so we always talk about it when we go and recruit. Um, if you see a guy get hit and he's always getting hit, there's a reason to that. Like there's a reason for that. Um, and you can take that guy and he has a good foundation and you can mold him into a guy that whether it be I want him to slug or I want him to just be a big-time zone-discipline guy and, I, and he's on takes and spin counts, whether he's on takes 0-1, 1-1, you know, or maybe even it goes aggressive is taking 0-2 because guys never throw strikes 0-2 or whatever. Um, I do feel, you know, I do feel batting average is important because guys that hit for high average hit, they get hits. What about stolen bases? Another thing that's, that's really just disappeared uh, almost in, in Major League Baseball. Only guys that are like plus-plus runners uh, yeah. seem to really run much. But, you know, obviously it was a short season in 2020, but you guys uh, were in the top ten in the nation in stolen bases. Um, you know, you and you've talked about recruiting speed uh, as, as one of the tools that you really love. But, you know, speed can be used for the things. Obviously speed goes into how much range you have defensively. Speed goes into running the bases you know, taking extra bases. There's a lot more to this. In fact, there's a lot of guys in the big leagues that really, really run and are, you know, have great defensive range but just don't steal bases. For you as a uh, as an offensive coach, do you still believe in the stolen base? Do you th still think there's value in stealing bases? Yes, there absolutely is. If it doesn't, if, if the situation is correct, if it doesn't take away from, a, from an offensive player that's standing at the plate, if it doesn't take his ability away from driving you in. And what I mean by that, it just has to be calculated. You got to, I mean, you have to understand how your guys run. You have to understand the tendencies of the, of the pitcher. Um, you know, what are his times to play? How this catcher, and is this catcher throwing the ball well in between innings? A lot of these things go into play when we talk about running. Um, this season, we, we just, the guys just took hold of it and, and they started to feel like, um, they could put themselves in situations where they were not going to get thrown out. Um, but, you know, you, I, I think as an offensive coach, you have to be smart um, about, you know, giving your guys green light and when to shut them down. You know, our, our best hitter, um, he got drafted, you know, in the fourth round. He, he was our catcher. Um, when there's a runner on first, we were not running. We were not going to take. We were not going to take the bat out of his hand. We weren't just going to do it unless it was just just a hundred percent chance we we're going to take the base. Um, you know, so those things come into play. There is absolutely room for stolen bases in our game. 
But if you watch, and 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 I talk to, to coaches about this all the time, if you watch and you get into postseason play and you get into conference tournament play, those teams that run a ton, they don't run anymore because you're, you're not going to face teams that have better pitching staffs. They're better uh, at holding runners. They're better behind the plate. So, therefore, the, the, the risk of running and getting thrown out is way, way uh, – it's, it's, it's worse than actually stealing the base because you still got to get ahead. So, like, as you get further into the season and, and, and the, the outs become more precious, I think stolen bases sometimes take a little more of a backseat because just those 27 outs are so precious. But, but it, you know, Jeff, if, if, if the times work out, if the catcher is showing you that he cannot be consistent on the bag, and we have the personnel to run, we're going to go. We're going to go. Uh, but there's always exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, if, if you like to hit at the plate and you wanted to hit with a guy on base, you're going to probably maybe just put the brakes on the run game and just let that guy go um, offensively, let him hit there. Um, so we, we take a lot of those things into account. But to be honest, I'm, I'm a little more – involved practice-wise on dirt ball reaching going first to third. I think those things, um, to us, hold more weight in our program than scoring bases um, because there's threat of running, and you can create pressure without actually stealing. And, you know, you can put pressure on the catcher and the pitcher to actually command the breaking ball. And if you do that, now he's got to get the ball into more, uh, you know, he's got to get it more up in the zone. Now he's just getting better pitches to hit. Um, you know, we're going to put more pressure on the outfielders, attacking ground balls on base hits. Um, you know, I think those things hold more weight in our program than stolen bases. We, we, we practice them a lot more. The dirt ball reads <clears throat> um, are something we've talked about with some other guys in the podcast and something I've always really bought into and and I think people will be surprised at how much that actually happens. I mean how 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 many times if you had to guess maybe you have a number, you know, how many times does this actually happen in the ACC where you, you your guys can move up because of balls in the dirt in a, in any given game or, or a weekend. Is that I mean is that still a part of the game at, at that high of a level? Oh, there, there's no doubt about it. It happens all the time. Um, it happens and it, to be honest with you, it happens more um, with 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 you know guys that aren't as fast in our game, I think, because now you're a little more apt to convert a breaking ball. Okay, you have a, you have just an average runner on first base, and you know it's a two strike count. You know something's going to be down and in the dirt, but that pitcher's got more like he's he's more apt to bury that because he's not worried that worried about that guy either stealing or going dirt ball read. But that's what it's more prevalent in our game. It's those guys that. You know, they, they read knees and they read, you know, they read glove. Like, we're, we're, we talk a lot about reading the catcher and not so much the ball flight. We're trying to see that guy go down. If we see that guy go down, we're out. It's 100% on. If we read wrist uh, down in open wrist or we see knees early in a block position, we're going out. Now, it's becoming a little different because you, you see guys that catch on a knee and they're going to try to just block there. We're still going to take our, or excuse me, they, they, they catch on one knee. Um, we're, we're going to, we're still going to take our chances, but there's a lot of things that go into play. And, and um, but, but, you know, to, to, to get back to your question, is it still prevalent? Is it, is it a part of the game? It absolutely is. We want to get, um, you know, we want to get three a game. We're, we're working for three dirt ball reads a game. Um, and if you know we have we have a chart that we keep in the dugout, it's it's kind of a, a hustle chart. Uh, it has to do with you know 
good slides, hit by pitches. It has to do with, you know, hard 90s. It has to do with, you know, taking extra bases, stretching singles into doubles. It has to do with dirt ball reads. It has to do with um, just creating any kind of pressure play that we can create. Um, you know, more often than not, you can find those those chances uh, to, to get the freebie, for sure. Other freebies that you've talked about, walks and hit by pitches. I'm just kind of curious as to, uh, well, let's start with walks. Do you think walks? Do you think that's something that you can teach guys to do? Um, that was always a, that was a debate between uh, some coaches that, that I've, I coached with in the past. Basically, if a guy's a free swinger, he's always going to be a free swinger. Or can you can you make this? Uh, can you can you get a guy to a point where he can take a decent amount of walks? It's um, <laughs> when. I won't even say which school because just to not bring the kid up. But one of the jobs that I got, when we took over the program. We looked at the look kind of looking at stats from the year before, and there was one guy that uh, had like 180 at bats at bats, not plate appearance, 180 at bats and zero walks in the previous year. And uh, and it was like, <laughs> what do you do with this guy? So I'm just kind of uh, curious to hear your point of view. Do you think that you can? Do you, can you teach walks? Can, is that something you can coach? Can you can you take a team, same makeup as the year before, and, and increase their walk totals just by the way you're coaching them or things you're doing at practice? Uh, 100%. There's, there's, uh, there's no doubt about it. To me, walks, everyone's going to look at walks and be like, well, okay, those guys are less aggressive. Um, and and I don't, we don't equate that at all. Um, we don't talk about walks one. We talk about hit by pitches a lot. Um, we, we practice hit by pitches a lot. Um, we don't practice taking pitches. What we practice a lot is getting guys to understand the strike zone. And I mean, we have rounds in BP where we just guys are calling out pitches. They're calling out zones, and we we communicate a certain way. We have a seven ball drill, and we talk about you know the inside part being one, uh, and the outside part edge black is seven. You know, in the MLBPs, we're hunting four six, we're hunting three five, we're hunting one two. Um, and, and, and the more you do that, the more you create zone awareness, the more you can coach a kid through an approach. Therefore, he's just not going to swing at a pitch that he can't hit. The, the other thing that we do to get into analytics that I think drives walks is we have a we have a we have a stud of a director of player development. His name's Kyle Sayers, and here's a plug for him. But what we do is basically. We give guys hot, hot zone, cold zone reports after every BP. What zones, and it's all the track, man. What zones are you hitting hard? What zones aren't you hitting hard? And if a guy isn't hitting a zone hard, we're going to try to eliminate that zone in his approach. And if you eliminate that zone in his approach, if that's where guys are going to try to get him out, we're not, we're just going to get to a point where hopefully he takes that pitch. Okay? And that's going to drive walk numbers up. That's going to create uh, less weak contact and less swing and miss. So it's not so much about we don't talk about walks. We just talk. We just talk about a specific, an approach and zones and and um, you know what parts of the plate our guys can handle. And as you do that over time, guys become extremely not. They don't become picky. They just become extremely. Um, confident in what they're looking for and what they can handle. And once that player understands that, now if he doesn't get a pitch that he can hit, he's just going to spit on it. Because then it becomes to this, you know, how good is his two-strike approach? Our walks went up because our two-strike approach got better. 
okay? And we talk a lot about not the 0-2 pitch. We talk about getting the 2-2. And when our guys are in 0-2, um, if, if, you know, or, or 1-2, or if he's in, you know, or, or any count for that matter, if he has confidence in what he's doing at that moment in time, he's not going to expand the zone. And then you're going to get, then you're going to get into more three ball counts. And then guys, you know, the guys just miss because they're tired of throwing. You know what I mean? They get tired and they miss. So walks is absolutely something you can teach, but it's not directly, if that makes sense. We teach it indirectly. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of how we go about that. She said your walk numbers went up because your two strike approach got better. Um, can you talk about what your two-strike approach is? is? Do you have a general overall philosophy that, that, like, when we get in two strikes, this is what we're doing, guys? Yeah, for sure. And, and just to touch on the two-strike approach makes our walks better. And the reason is, is if I'm a guy that's going up there and I know I struggle with two strikes, I'm going to be swinging completely, you know, on, you know I'm going to be swinging a pitcher that I can't drive. If I'm a guy, if, I, if we have a player that is confident in his two-strike approach, he might not, he might not mock it, or he might not swing at that first, you know, five-six zone pitch because it's not something he's looking for, um, you know, and, and therefore he's not going to put himself in a bad count, um, which to me creates better walks. Um, but going to the two strike, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's certainly evolved throughout the year. Um, throughout the years as a coach, um, you know, I was always a big fastball. Um, away timing guy, get on the plate, uh, choke up, spread out. I went through a phase where, you know, we didn't get on the plate. We didn't choke up. I wanted our guys to take their best swing. Um, to me, it's more preference related, but there, 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 are, there are two absolutes that we, that we must do. We're going to, we're absolutely going to shorten our move. And you see, you see in the big leagues all the time. You see guys, um, you know, Bobuchet is a big time leg kick guy. He gets two strikes. He quiets down. You see guys like that happening um, all through Major League Baseball. But first thing, we're going to make a physical adjustment. But we have up, we have options of making three: um, spread out, eliminate your move, choke up. Those are those are three options. And I I make our guys in the fall do one of those three things. They have to do one of those three things just that just to try. Now, if a guy is struggling. To, to take his best swing from one of those three different physical adjustments, um, and I trust him as a hitter, we'll let him go. Um, the other things that we're going to do is we're going to move. We're going to move on the box. We're going to move on the box. If, if we're not, if we're not going to worry about the fastball in, because you can't hit that if you're looking fastball away anyway. We're going to we're going to get on the plate to just to have more plate coverage away. Um, you know, and. and uh, the thing that we changed this year, I, I, there's other programs in the country that do it. This is not, this is something that I was always thought about and wanted to do, but I never did it, is we switched our timing. We went to breaking ball timing uh, with two strikes. Um, and, and, and I can get really deep into it, but basically the nuts and bolts of it is um, if this guy has a 70% tendency to throw spin or change-ups, I want to be on time for that. And if he throws a fastball away, I can still hit that pitch or I can foul it off. If he throws it in, I'm not getting to it. Most of the time we're taking it. But, but if we're on the plate, he's going to run the risk of hitting us. So we're not dealing with the fastball in. So we have breaking ball timing with our setup. We're setting up late. We're trying to be on time for the breaker. But if he throws a fastball up or in, I want to take it. I don't want to swing at it. I just want to be able to hit the fastball away. 
and that's our two-strike approach. So we want to be in, we want to be in our lanes with breaking ball timing, and we want to be able to foul off the fastball away. Um, and we're just trying to hit that son of a gun as deep as possible. We're trying to try to hit that fastball through um, the other dugout, uh, and and we work on it. We have drills that we put in the place and it, it took it take a, it would take a while for our guys to actually understand it but once they understood it um, the light bulb went off and it started to really really make our guys confident free 2k and when our guys got confident you know and they didn't expand the zone before they got to two strikes because they were really confident in the two strike approach our guys started to slug more they started to get more hits and um, it was just really fun to see that's awesome. And I'd love to hear that because these are – I like talking about these things and, and getting into it in some depth because this is uh, – too too many times I, I think that now in in the world we live in with social media, and I just talked about this on our, my last podcast that I recorded as well, um, but th- there's a lot of push for things on social media that are just not – things that are taught at high levels, and, and I love to hear what coaches, hot coaches at high levels do. Whether or not I agree with you, um, you know, doesn't really matter. What, what's important is that I think it's important for people to hear what coaches like yourself are doing, and, you know, I, I just I love to hear kind of what some focal points are for your offense and things you're doing and that you are still – you still have a two-strike approach as a team. That's, a, that's an important uh, thing that you work on, and, and, and it's important to hear why, that it increases – Obviously, it's hopefully going to help guys get on base, or hopefully increase their, uh, you know, their production with two strikes when they put the ball in play. As far as just at least getting on base, even if you sacrifice a little bit of power, but it also it helps increase that walk number. But because hopefully you foul a couple more pitches off, um, you know, you see some more pitches, and obviously the more pitches you see in at bat, the better chance you have of seeing four balls, right? Um, so all that stuff just it makes a lot of sense, and I and I love just love to hear uh you know what kind of things that, that guys like you are, are teaching um i want to talk about something related just about competing in the box that's something that you mentioned earlier on in the podcast when you talk to your guys about being competitive in the box you know what, what does that mean what does that look like and why is that an important thing for you when when you're building an offense to get guys that are competitive and, and competing with confidence when they're in the box yeah, um, we kind of reverse engineer that thing when we talk about competing in the box. We talk, we talk a lot about what um, non-competitive bats look like, um, and I want those guys to see that. Because it's, I mean, it's such a cliche term. Uh, you know, about guys competing, um, but to me, when we talk about you know competing, we want to show them what non-competitive bats are. And I like we roll out a stat. We I have this PowerPoint, and we throw it out there and. We say this guy had 200 bats, and I'm gonna mess up the numbers, but I, I I don't know them off the top of my head. But let's say a guy hits let's say a guy hits 315, and um, we actually did this drill with a player that was in our room. Uh, he was our third baseman. He hit 323 <clears throat> as a freshman, um, and then I took his numbers. I took his at bats. His plate appearances, and I took his hits, and I said to him before, I said, um, I said his name. I said, Kevin, how many how many bats you give away? How many how many times did you go up, not focused on what you wanted, and just swung at a pitch you shouldn't have swung at, and just gave the bat away? Hit a, hit a you know hit a three hopper to the shortstop. He said, Coach, I, I mean at least fifteen times. I said, All right, Kev. I said, Let's add five 
hypothetical five hits. Let's say let's just say maybe maybe you got five hits. If you're a little more locked in, his average jumps from three twenty three to three sixty five hits over two hundred bats. And you're talking about locking in, being focused for five more plate appearances throughout a year. To me, that 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 screams being competitive and, and having present moment focus um, to those. To those guys that want to understand what competitive is, it's, it's, to, we talk a lot about guys that are ready, guys that are com- always consistently ready for for whatever it might be. That's to me competing. It's not like sticking your chest out and being tough and swinging hard. Like that's not competing. Compe- competing to me is guys that that can be in the moment more often than not and be able to understand situations and execute their plan. That's, that's competing. Um, and, and, and how do you get that out of your guide? I think you have to put a focus on almost every swing within a practice. Um, that sounds terrible. That sounds like, like you talk about 50 swings under like some sort of coach supervision. We want to make sure there's a focus. So when we take our BPs, they'll get tracked. Um, you know, when we're, when we're in the cages, you know, they're partnering up and they're competing on something. It could be a certain drill. It could be hitting a ball here in the cage. Um, that You're just putting them in uh, settings of being competitive um, and just creating focus on the swing. Uh, that's, that's, to me, um, how we've done it. You know, an okay job. We get better at it, for sure. But that's how we've done an okay job in creating competitive guys. Um, on our team in creating competitive at-bats. Um, you know, we talk a lot about situational hitting, um, and that has a lot to do with being competitive as well. Um, and just putting a, a focus and a, and a plan on each uh, setting, drill, or swing. So um, that's that's kind of what we what we try to, to preach and, and work on. I love that. And a couple more things here before I, uh, if you don't mind, if you have a little bit more time just before I, I yeah, let you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm for sure. Um, how much does having an approach factor into being competitive in an at bat? Because when you think about a guy that throws away an at bat, like your like that that conversation that you had with that with your freshman, um, you know, a, you know, swinging at pitches that you shouldn't swing at and kind of giving it a bat away is uh, just a, you know a term that a lot of hitting coaches use. You know, you gave that a bat away, or you've you've given this many at bats away over the course of the season, um, where where you basically. You know, one one way to define that for me is that you didn't either have a plan or didn't execute the plan, or or just were, or you lost focus or whatever it may have been. Um, how much do you think that that having an approach every time you go to the plate is a part of uh, being competitive? You know, having a plan before you go up there on, on what you're trying to execute, and if you if you believe that that is an important thing, can we talk a little bit about approach? What that means? And maybe just kind of what you know. What are what are approaches you talk about with your kids? Like what are uh, you know what do you think are good is a good approach for for some players maybe on your team to have when they go to the plate? And it obviously might vary in situation. But let's talk about uh, approach a little bit. So just first of all, I guess, do you believe that having an approach when you go to the plate is a part of staying competitive and not giving it a bad way? Yeah, someone would have to tell me that it's not 100% of being competitive. Because your, your approach could certainly be go up there and swing as hard as you can three times at a pitch you feel like you get hit hard. Whether it be a break of a slide or a change up, a fastball, it doesn't matter. But if that's your approach and you went up and you executed it 
someone can't tell you just because you just because you didn't just because you maybe didn't have success like our approaches aren't built around success they're, they're built around plans um that we talk about a ton that we take our player strength so if you know i think it's a hundred percent relative to competing is being able to execute your approach um but quite simply our, our, our approaches are built off of our guy's strengths let's say every guy in the room has the same strength if you're going to design an approach for me it's about attacking fastball it's attacking fastball it's attacking fastball you, no matter what level if you can be on time for the fastball um, and you can create the ability to get your body on time over a season over the length of a season more often than not you will be successful and that's the first thing we talk about we talk about one being on time that's uh, for the fastball and, and two we talk about having a good two strike approach I feel like you're going to take and this is, this is these are facts you're going to take uh, 50% of your bats over the course of a college season are going to have a two strike uh, accountant so the second thing we talk about within our approach is being able to execute with two strikes like 100% understanding what allows us to have success with two strikes and then the third thing we, we, we preach a ton is not giving up our swings and, and our approach is if I'm looking fastball away and he throws me a slider in that window and it's an OO pitch but out of the hand it looks like a fastball I don't want to give my swing up so um, and this is tough for guys that have really good hand acclimation and this is something that we, we have to work on and we, I think it's something you teach is having the ability to swing through that pitch because you got full and not slowing down your body all right, and, and decelerating your barrel just to make contact. So that's the third part of our approach is swinging to do damage. When I pull the trigger, I want it to be my A swing. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I'm, I'm working to get my best swing off um, as much as I can until I get to two strikes. And then I have to, you know, I have my, I'm at a disadvantage, so now I have to give a little bit. Um, and then the fourth thing we talk about is having the ability to not be a robot and, and, and have adjustability patterns, not only within our swings, but within the at-bat. So, you know, it's, it's about handling mistakes and making adjustments. Um, once we cement, um, you know, our approaches, uh, I'm looking fastball away right here. I'm, I'm attacking fastball away. If I get to a 1-1 count, he's shown the ability to throw spin there. Maybe he's just trying to win a strike to get to two strikes. I might change my approach. I might sit on spin. Okay, now he misses with spin. Now I'm going back to sitting fastball because I'm in a plus count. Um, he throws a fastball on the edge. I take it. Now we're at a 2-2 count. Now I'm locked in. I'm getting on the plate. Here's my two-strike approach. All right, I'm sitting soft timing trying to fight for the fastball. Um, you know, he throws a slider that misses. Now it's 3-2. Our rule in, in VT is now we're going back to fastball timing with 3-2. Boom, here's the fastball. I get a hitter in the second baseman's head. That's an approach to me. Walking through the bats like that, talking through the bats like that, and just constantly talking to our guys. We watch so much video, not on swing. We watch so much video on what guys are thinking in the box what they're looking at and Jeff there's some guys that can't handle it there's some guys that are true see the ball hit the ball um, and we those guys there's not many of them anymore but those guys are, are guys that we you know we'll have some separate conversations but that to me is an approach 
driven conversation where I just talked about that we'll have with our guys individually and as a group. I love that. So if I'm a hitter, when I was a hitter, I wanted a, a fastball that was uh, somewhere from the, the middle third to the outer third of the plate and something that was, you know, thigh to belt is kind of what I handled the best. And I, I, I like to kind of pepper balls up the middle and in the right center gap, whatever. That was kind of my, my strong suit. And, uh, and it was just pull a ball off of, off of reaction, uh, you know, more than looking there. If I went up to the plate and that's what I wanted because that's what I handled, but I changed my approach because of a count, uh, less than two strikes because I, I believed I was going to get a curveball or a slider or even a left-handed changeup or whatever it may have been. If I changed my approach and I got that pitch and I did not hit a ball hard, even though I, I kind of got the pitch I was expecting, I took an okay swing, I just didn't hit a ball very hard, would you have a conversation with me after that at bat and say, Jeff, there's no reason for you to get out of your fastball approach. You are a fastball hitter. Stick with the fastball approach until two strikes, and if he gives you something else, spit on it. Or you, do you encourage guys to try to think along with the pitcher? Obviously, you guys have great scouting reports at your level. You can see, you watch video, uh, and, and you can kind of compare, okay, this is – for the type of hitter you are, this is how this pitcher tries to get people like you out. So maybe I could anticipate he's going to throw me this pitch, but even though I know he's going to throw it, I don't necessarily hit that pitch real well. You know, how would you? What's your conversation like with a with a player like that? Another maybe maybe gets pretty detailed, but I'm, I'm interested in it, and I think that there are, uh, you know, if you're to be the best coach that guys can be, whatever whatever level, whether it's a high school coach listening to this or whatever it is, I think this is an important thing for people to understand. So can you talk a little bit about maybe? What sort of conversation you might have with that player in that situation? Yeah, um, well, first off, I, I, tell, I tell the guys this all the time. This is your approach. I make them write it down. This is your approach. You own it. It's not mine. If you need one, I'll give you one. Okay? And what I mean by that is if a guy wants to sit slider in a certain count, sit slider, buddy, but sell out to it. Commit to what you're doing. Um, if it doesn't make sense, I, know, I, I will give the player the information that we have and why I think it doesn't make sense. But if it's something that in that moment he commits to it, I'm completely okay with it. Completely okay with it. Now, if it's a guy that keeps swinging a slider and missing it, he's like, Coach, I knew I was going to get a slider, so I sat on it. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to bring him in. We're going to give him the data and be like, this is why you should never sit slider. Um, but if it's a guy that's kind of like, you know, in between, sometimes he hits it, sometimes he doesn't, or, you know, maybe handles, handles it well, and our approach going in um, to that game is, hey, don't sit slider. We're all in fastball. And he can tell me why he does, you know, he sat a, you know, sat a certain pitch at this certain point. I'm completely fine with it. At the end of the day, it's all about trust, I think. So to kind of, so to kind of think, some, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I, I think what you, I think our goals are in, or our jobs as coaches is to develop the player's skill set. Therefore, he can trust his skill sets, and you give him how many ever tools in his toolbox that he can take forward and use in a game to help you score runs. We're just going to guide him along the way. We're going to put up guide rails and be like, hey, buddy, you don't do this too well. You might not want to sit on this certain pitch or, do, or get this certain spot in the box. So as long as we can put these guys – in situations to develop their tools as much as possible, I want at the end of the day for them to trust what they're doing because the kid that trusts his abilities and trusts what he's doing and has confidence in his ability, at the end of the day, that player is way better 
than a kid with the perfect approach and a perfect swing. I'll take a kid that's confident and understands who he is over any other player um, at any point because the confident player is the best player on the field, especially in our sport. So to summarize a, a little bit about just having an approach, competing, uh, you know, being competitive, hitting with confidence. Basically, if you've if you've got a plan, and you go to the plate with the plan, and you execute your plan, even if you get out, that's an at bat that that you'll take that that you're kind of striving for with your guys. It's when a, it's when a guy kind of forgets about an approach or swings at a pitch that he shouldn't have swung at that was outside of his approach. That's when that's when you feel like guys give a bats away, and and just at a at a very uh, kind of dumbed down level, I guess if. You know, for a young guy listening to this, what it means to have an approach is just to go to the plate, go to, go to the plan, well, go to the plate with a plan, and, and a plan that you believe is going to be successful for you is going to help you have a good at bat. It's that simple, and that's all. That's all. It's, I think that's all it's ever been. That's why the 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 term "see the ball, hit the ball" has always been correct. You know, see it, hit it, react to which. If I see a but if I see a pitch in the zone that I can't handle, as a player, through constant repetitions, you're going to know you can't handle it, so you're not going to swing at it, right? You know, like, you talk about giving away at bats, like, if, if, I have a, if I have a kid that can hit breaker, okay, and he knows it, um, he's the number two hitter in the game, and all we're talk, we talk a lot about, we, we, we say from, from the pregame to the right before the first pitch, our meeting, our offensive meeting is, Regardless of what this guy is on video, you have to make him command breaker uh, before you honor it. There's no reason to swing at breaking ball until he shows that he's going to throw you one that you can hit. And giving away a bat to me would be a guy that knows he can hit breaker but swings at the first one of the game just because he sees it well. To me, that's not a good – that's not that, – because just because you see it doesn't mean it's the right pitch to hit. And just because you can handle it, it still has to be the right breaker. It has to be up. So those are those are conversations that we talk about a lot. And to me, that would not be executing an approach because you need to make sure you understand if this guy's actually going to give you a pitch to hit. So that's kind of that's there's the fine line there. But uh, yes, to summarize, executing a plan that you have confidence in that that is to me hitting with a within within an approach. This is awesome. I, I can't let you go without asking how <laughs> how you practice hit-by-pitches and, and why you believe that's an important part of your offense. Well, the stinking hit-by-pitch rule has changed. And the funny thing was, like, when, in 2015, this was, this was something that we came up with at BCU. And, um, you know, myself and Coach Diffler, and, and, you know, he can have all the credit for it. But um, to, me, to me, it's about um, – not allowing the pitcher to use the whole plate and not allowing the pitcher to miss in. If he misses in and hits the player, now a guy's on base, he can't go back in there. Now we can get on the plate and we can shrink the zone and we can just look for pitches that we can get our hands extended on. So to me, that's the whole thought process process behind hit by pitch. Um, and plus, it's tough. In 2015, we led the country hit by pitches. Um, and that's when we went to the Super Regional. We just, you know, we're, we're an above average offense. We had some really good players. Two kids are, um, they're knocking on the big league door right now. But, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's about neutralizing the flinch. Because you see a pitch in, and if you don't practice getting hit by pitch, you're going to move your feet. You're going to scoot your hips out, okay? But you're also going to expose ribs and elbows. So 
not only do we practice it because we can get on base and we get hit, we want our guys to be safe. We will tell them to put on all the leader shield gear. If, you, if you're in a BP setting and I grab a softball, so we have some balls that fly like baseballs, but they're not as hard. Um, they're just incredible balls. We're going to throw them in. And we want the guy to get used to seeing it in there and learning how to to tuck elbows, prevent ribs, and try to turn your knee in, okay? Uh, and, and that's what we do. We hit them within BP rounds. That's how all the coaches that throw BP, right? You grab a softball, like without looking in the bucket, the ball's the ball needs to be thrown at the player. Um, it stings. Some guys never hurt a player. Um, you know, and, and it's funny. Sometimes they'll they'll get into the BP bucket and they'll uh, they'll hide the balls. They'll put them in another bucket. And, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> they're sick of getting hit, especially if it's cold. Um, but that's a culture thing. I think uh, at the end of the day, you're 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 just not giving the opponent. Um, like, he's got to be penalized. That pitcher's got to be penalized for making a poor pitch. Um, we do not teach to chicken wing and, and stick your elbow out. We're not teaching that. That's not our deal. Um, it's just about if the pitch is inside his white lines and you're on the plate, you got to be able to handle it. <laughs> I love that. And the, the one year that I coached high school baseball, I did that. That was something that several of my college teams did as well. I bought Incredibles. I put them in the BP bucket. And we'd use them for other things too, but in, in regular BP, you know, whoever's throwing BP was was taught the same thing. You're going to just throw it inside, and basically you're trying not to get out of the way, right? And by the end of the season, it's a short high school season here in Pennsylvania, but, uh, you know, by the end of my first season there, guys in the dugout would go nuts when one of their teammates got hit. Like, they loved it. It was like one of the biggest rally cries that, that you have on your team because just guys, I don't know, for whatever reason, guys just really rally behind uh, a teammate who's willing to sacrifice himself and stay in there and get hit with a pitch and, and get on base. That's like the ultimate team play. Yeah, for sure. Well, our guys took it as far. I remember at BCU one year they would, uh, you know, the pitchers and, and the position players would be down the line stretching during the other team's BP. And, um, they, I mean, they, our guys were loud. They, they, I mean, they, they should play with confidence all the time. And, uh, you know, if a, if a ball off a bat, someone pulls the ball down the line left in a hitter, they were not. They were told unless you go for your face, they're not. They weren't allowed to move in their stretch line, so they just wear it, um, like off the ground in the air. Um, you know, we had to tell our starting pitcher to, to get out of it to be a knucklehead, but uh, it just it, it creates a toughness, and it's something that you know in the game it's it's part of it. And if you can learn to protect yourself. Uh, and be safe and uh, not give, you know, not not give ground in the box. I think you're just you're creating another weapon that allows you to get on base. Um, you know, so it's something that we talk a lot about, and more so we just practice it. And wear that Evo shield, man. Wear that Evo shield. <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want to get hurt. We want to protect your elbows, uh, protect your ankles, um, for sure. Yeah, this is Kurt Elbin, everybody. He's the recruiting coordinator at Virginia Tech. This has been awesome. It's uh, this hour and holy cow, hour and almost 15 minutes has flown by. Uh, this has been great, man. I've sincerely enjoyed this conversation, and I think it's a lot of great info to share uh, with our subscribers here at Figured Out Baseball. So thank you so much uh, for taking part in this today and being willing to share everything that you did. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and uh, y'all be safe up there, man. Hopefully, we see you soon.